Um, two weeks. Yeah, two weeks in our yeah, lives can change quite a bit. How are you feeling? Feels surreal. Yeah. It's not your first trial, but or it's not your first legal case, but it is your first trial, right? Yes. Yeah, it's not my first legal case, but it is my first trial. And um, yeah, it, def- it just feels surreal. And I feel... Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Um, it feel, I, I feel really grateful for the opportunity to go on trial. Um, and I know that this is something both you and others have said, which is that regardless of what happens, I feel so confident that we are on the right side of history. Um, I'm a dog walker and I talk to all my clients about what's happening and it makes me so happy when they're like, nothing's gonna happen to you. Like you guys are so good to our dogs and something about that is so innocent because it just shows that these, pe- these are the people who could be on, our, on the jury, that they believe, that they too believe that uh, these chickens are no different than the dogs. In, in their you know, very innocent little statement, I find so much hope that um, most people do want uh, animals like Ching, uh, who was rescued from Sunrise Farms to live a good, happy, safe, and free life. Yeah, and I think, I mean, there are people who do obviously think that chickens should be treated differently than dogs. And I think probably that's most Americans, but even people who think it is okay to kill and eat and, and cage chickens, when they see the conditions inside some of these factory farms, routinely the response we get is just horror. It's, it's not even opposition, it's outright horror. And, and I think that's what is going to unfold in this trial, that if, and this is a very big if, if we're actually given the opportunity to share the things that we saw inside Sunrise Farms, the jurors will be on our side just because they'll be horrified by what they see. But, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the goal we had of this conversation is, you know, first and foremost, to find out what your thoughts and feelings you all have, because I've said from day one, when we started the Open Rescue Network, Ronnie, I guess this was what, eight years ago? Uh, eight years ago, in 2015, January 2015, so a little over eight years ago, that the, the open rescue movement and the movement to protect animals is about all of us. It's not just about leaders. It's not just about defendants. It's not just about influencers on social media. We succeed and thrive together, and we fall together if we fail. Um, so part of what we want to do in this meeting is just figure out you know, what thoughts and feelings and aspirations you have. But another thing we wanted to convey is just why this trial is so important. Because I think a lot of people who are outside of the legal system don't have a good sense. And and frankly, even those of us within the legal system, it's so complicated and there's so much procedural jargon. A lot of times it feels completely unintelligible. But if you look at American history, it's not an exaggeration to say court cases have been the defining moments of almost every important social movement in American history. The trial of Susan B. Anthony in the 1890s led to the women's suffrage movement. Um, Brown versus Board of Education was the immediate kind of predecessor to the civil rights movement. And the only reason people marched in Montgomery and Birmingham was because they saw Brown and they said to themselves, holy shit, we can win in court. Um, Roe versus Wade and obviously Dobbs was hugely important to the women's rights movement and the right to reproductive choice. And, you know, we've seen in even the last five, six years of Burgerfeller, the, the case on gay marriage and how important that's been to the entire country. Um, 
So yeah, I hope we can dive a little into the case, but uh, maybe the best way to start is, you know, when we first started talking and Romani was part of these conversations back in 2013 and 2014, we knew that there were some very, very big risks involved in going into these places, documenting what some of the most powerful corporations and people on this planet don't want to be exposed. So why, why is this case important to you? <clears throat> And why yeah. was taking these risks important to you? I mean, I, yeah, I remember when we first started talking about open rescue, I didn't feel like I, it didn't feel like, a, you know, I, I felt like I had to do it. Hmm. When, when I was so helpless watching these animals suffer, um, whether it was on watching earthlings or just hearing about um, chickens and cows on dairy farms or, uh, animals being slaughtered, I felt the, the helplessness, the only way I can describe it was like eating me from the inside. And so open rescue <laughs> was a remedy for that. It felt like finally there's a glimmer of hope that could help me um, help others escape this horrific fate. Um, and taking those risks was an opportunity. And I still feel that way. I feel really grateful um, about this opportunity um, to take those risks because very few people have gone inside of, these, um, inside of these factory farms, inside of these slaughterhouses. And the way I like to describe it is we're kind of the eyes of the public. We, we come out and we share what we've seen because very few people have gone inside of those places. And um, even fewer people have gone to trial after doing something like that. So um, it, it just felt like a moral obligation, simply put. And we've talked to some of the few people who have gone to trial, including the first person who served prison time for doing an open rescue. I should say jail time, because he, he got six months in jail. Yeah. Prison is one year or more. I think we talked about those cases when we started this. And I mean... I think I know why, but I'm actually curious, in your own words, why were you not deterred by that? Because there's a chance that happens in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm trying to look back. I, I think the reason I was not deterred by hearing those stories of people going to prison is because I really truly believed and believe that what we were doing um, was the right thing and that if we, I just remember thinking like, well, we're nonviolent. Mm -hmm. We're helping animals. <laughs> if this is wrong, then I'm okay going to prison because that means we live in, you know, an upside down world and something needs to be fixed. And if I'm going to be part of that fixing, that's okay. But it doesn't make sense if, you know, people who are helping animals can go to prison, then okay, I guess that's what we have to do. Um, I, I, I remember thinking that thought. Um, I mean, it's not that I didn't feel fear and that I don't, I definitely do. But um, when I think about that very, like that little, <clears throat> yeah, just that fact that this, we're not doing something wrong, that these places who are abusing animals are doing something wrong, that's what makes me um, you know, willing to take, the, take legal risks. Yeah, and I remember, I, I learned fairly early on when we became friends and then eventually when we started dating that for those of you who don't know Priya actually has a very intense fear of confined spaces 
Yeah, it's like really very, intense. very intense. Like I get scared when I'm coming in the elevator. Yeah, like an elevator <laughs> scares her for and and it was actually one of the reasons when we first started doing this. I yeah. I don't know remember if I actually had a conversation with you about this, but it definitely went through my head that is this the right thing? And and this is the balance when you're in social movements where you're going up against extremely powerful industries and a very, very strong status quo bias, you know, and like we've been doing a lot of research and other social movements that was true certainly of anti-war activists, right? And still is true in many ways of anti-war activists. Definitely true of the civil rights movement. I mean, it was unbelievable the amount of power and wealth that came down on these activists. I mean, for doing the most seemingly innocent things, like just sitting on a school bus, right? Sitting at a lunch counter. You're firebomb for this? Like the FBI is surveilling you all over the country and sends a letter with secret recordings of your affairs that try and convince you to commit suicide? This is the things that status quo power did to people just for doing fairly innocent things. And um, on the one hand, it, it can make you feel good because you think like, all right, well, I mean, somebody's got to do it and I know what, what I'm doing is right. And I believe that if we go and talk to people about what we, we do, they will eventually understand that it's right. But on the other hand, when you look at the history of just the amount of power and, and pressure and just outright abuse that's been inflicted on social movements over the last hundred years, it can be very discouraging. Um, but I think to me and to you, the thing that has always inspired us is actually the animals themselves. Like it's just, there's something incredibly powerful. And I saw the, the video that Joe uh, worked on was up on the screen just a moment ago. Maybe, maybe we can even play it. Yeah. But that, I mean, that video just kind of explains better than what we can do with our words, yeah. why it's, it's worth it, you know? Yeah, I just wanted to say also, that, I mean, obviously the core of being inspired is the animals, um, you know, just waking up with that gut-wrenching feeling of what, what these poor animals are going through every day. And recently, I'm sure everybody heard about um, the uh, orca's death, I literally wake up thinking about her all the time and how she's confined. Mm -hmm. And like, like even though, you know, she was in a cage of water, I can't even, I, I want to cry just thinking about it, all the orcas and all the, all animals. But since her story is in the media recently, like I just think about the fact that they're confined for a year, I mean, she was confined for years on end, all these animals, every day of their life, they're confined. And yeah, I went through my head. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be, I might possibly be in jail where I can't get out. And that's so scary. But, you know, for me, I felt like that's an important, that's an important way to show solidarity with the animals. And I'm not recommending that everybody do it because when I did experience that, it was honestly pretty, it was, it was, it was um, very hard for me, but it did very much make it real, the suffering of animals on a very little scale. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> And it's funny that you mentioned the powers. <laughs> like, they, it is so scary because I remember when I was in jail for uh, disrupting <laughs> Jeff Bezos um, in La in Las Vegas. I don't even see it as a disruption. You gave him a flower. Yeah, I gave him a flower. I literally. <laughs> You're in jail for giving Jeff Bezos a flower. Yeah, I was being nice to him. Like, <laughs> I actually was like, maybe I can talk to this guy. Yeah. But um, I just remembered there was a like the FBI. They were like, we're here to. We're here to ask you, you know, we're here to interrogate. They said that. They were here to interrogate you and investigate what happened here today. And I just kept saying, like, I think I said it twice. And I was like, oh, boy, I'm going to be here for five hours. And they're going to, I don't know what they're going to do to me. Yeah. And they asked me twice, like, are you willing to talk to us? And I was like, not without my lawyer's present. And they're like, okay, good night. <laughs> and I was like, that's it. Yeah. You know, and so it, it just kind of, they kind of, they kind of look for you to be fearful. And then I, that was a learning moment for me when I realized 
oh, okay, like, you really have to just be confident. I mean, not that you can get away with it. They can still do a lot of messed up things, but I just, I felt really good after that. I was like, oh, okay. Like, a lot of this is a farce, so that gave me a lot of confidence. But the way they came in, they were so intimidating, like five of them, and it's just like, <laughs> just, you know, one woman in this room with all these FBI officers, what am I supposed to say? It's kind of scary, but yeah, that, it, that was just a little story I wanted to share. Yeah, and that story illustrates something that is, is literally in the manual of social movements. So there's this group called Otpor, and they were responsible for successfully, non-violently resisting Slobodan Milosevic and bringing down a dictatorship that had literally committed genocide, right? So, and Otpor basically studied social movements over the last hundred years across the world and successfully brought down this dictator and said, wait a minute, we learned something from this experience, we should share with the world. And so they created this center called the Center for Nonviolent Strategies and Movements, I yeah. think it's Canvas, something like that. Something I don't remember like the acronym stands for. And one of the things they found over and over again across the world is the way you get to 3.5% of the population, which is the threshold that Erica Chenoweth at Harvard has found, when you get to about 3.5% of the population engaged in some sustained nonviolent civil resistance or sustained nonviolent direct action, virtually every movement in history has succeeded across the world in all societies. So you don't need everybody. You don't even need a majority. You don't even need that big of a minority. What you need is people who are active, who are willing to stand up and speak out. And then when you hit 3.5%, and, and that's the, the maximum threshold, every movement that hit 3.5. But that's obviously hard in moments in history where standing up and saying, I support gay rights, could get you imprisoned. <laughs> in moments in history when sitting in the wrong seat in the lunch counter can get you firebombed, right? When voting can get you and all your friends arrested. It wasn't just Susan B. Anthony who was arrested, all of her friends, even the people who allowed her to vote, who weren't even really collaborators, they weren't even co-conspirators, they were just like, I don't know, she's making a good argument, equal protection under the laws, privileges and immunities, there's even a lawyer with her. There, she brought a lawyer along with her to say, this is why I have the right to vote. And so these poor registrars, they're just like, I don't know. I guess I'll let her vote. And they got arrested and they got put in jail too. So everyone around her got in prison. And, but what, what Otpor found is in all these movements, the way they convinced people to keep doing it was they trained and prepared them. And it's so much easier to deal with scary things. I don't care if the scary thing for you is going into an elevator, dealing with a dog for the first time, skydiving, whatever it is that is your fear, when you prepare ahead of time and you have a sense of what you might be facing, suddenly it becomes a lot easier. And, and there's enormous amount of psychological research behind this because what psychologists and social scientists have found is that uncertainty is an emotional amplifier. Yeah. So if you'll feel some sort of fear and then you have uncertainty in addition to that fear, it like exponentially adds to yeah. it. Well, if you're trained or told a little bit about what you, to expect, that suddenly when you go to jail, my first arrest was holy shit scary. Because I was not expecting it. I got dragged in the police, got charged with a for felony. For leafletting, right? For leafletting. And I was, you know, a young law professor. I just graduated from law school. was planning to take the yeah, bar exam. Yeah, there's that one photo of you. You look so I was, pissed That's off. actually not the photo. There's oh, no photo of the first arrest. Oh, okay. Th yeah. That was like the second If I look pissed, it was, it's not the right photo. I, <laughs> I was terrified. I was like crying and just really upset. I didn't know what the hell was going on. <sighs> and it's because I didn't, and even as a lawyer, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how you get booked. I didn't know, you know, how do I even get a phone call right. to my lawyer? I knew nothing. And the system exploits your uncertainty to create more fear and deter you from doing the things that you need to do. And if you're given some 
even just some very simple tips and you're able to simulate what you're going to have to experience and suddenly that fear goes away because you can reconcile and, and, and kind of reckon with it before you go into that frightful experience. Yeah, and I, and I just so want to say, that's I really think important. you did a really good job in the early days of like, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I got to give Wayne credit because I felt that. I was like, yeah, I think I'll, we'll be in good hands because you knew what you were talking about. Like, I wasn't just like, all right, we weren't just saying, all right, let's go inside of these places. We had very rigorous, I mean, yeah, we had very rigorous training uh, and practice and the the sim the you know simulating the entire mm -hmm. experience experience so i was very lucky in that way yeah and that that was certainly true on may 29 2018 not just the two of us but dozens hundreds of other activists i mean hundreds of people went through a civil resistance training at the i guess it was an animal liberation conference yeah. by 2018 it used to be called the dxc forum and so everyone knew what it's like to get cuffed What's it like to be arrested? What do you expect when you get in there? But this is one huge difference between Adam Durand in 2004 and Direct Action Everywhere and, and us in 2018. When Adam did an open rescue in upstate New York, he had not talked to lawyers. He didn't have lawyers supporting him. And the few lawyers he did talk to, and he shared this at, was it last month, Dean? Or was it two months ago? Adam was speaking to us. I think it was last month. He, he said to us, yeah, the lawyers I talked to said, you're not getting arrested. And then after he was arrested, they said, you're not going to be, you know, convicted. And after he was convicted, they said, you're not going to be in prison. And, and after he was in prison, he said, like, what do I do now? <laughs> like he, he, he didn't know what to do. And, and so wow. the movement sort of fell apart after that. And one big difference in 2018 and now 2023 is we're ready. But sure. one of the really important things to note about this is it's not enough for two people to be ready or three people. You know, Cassie's the other defendant in this case. There was one other defendant, Rachel Ziegler, who's an amazing actress. I know she's super upset with me, but, you know, and I think we should acknowledge that and honor that and, and but still embrace her as a beautiful human being who's done incredible things for animals. Um, but for the three of us, and I know this is true, Cassie, even though she couldn't be here today, the most important thing to note about this case is they are not actually trying to prosecute me and you and Cassie. They're trying to, They're trying to prosecute you. Because the difference between May of 2018 and what Adam Duran did, and even the other open rescues we've done is, in May of 2018 at Sunrise Farms, I did not walk into a single barn. I did not touch a single chicken. All I did was talk about other people doing the same was train and encourage other people to do the thing that we knew was right, that we had a legal opinion from one of the most distinguished legal scholars in the state of California. Her office is a few minutes away from here at Avram. And, and all we did was organize other people to exercise their right to rescue. And, and I think the key thing to note about this is, and the reason they've been so motivated over five years to bring so many felony charges. At one point, I think we had seven felonies, 15 total eight. counts. Yeah. Was it eight felonies? Yes. I've lost count. So this is by far, the most aggressive prosecution we faced, even though we personally did nothing other than talk to police officers. At Reichart, the duck farm, I didn't even walk on the property. And I was live all streaming. I did, uh, all Priya did was talk on a live stream. All I, I did, yeah, all I did was, was talk to the police officers and explain to them why we felt there's animal cruelty, the opinions that we had from even former prosecutors. I mean, we had people who worked for the government on our side saying, this is clear animal abuse, they're doing nothing about this. And, and for that, we're facing very, very serious felony charges and um, up to this point, up to seven years in prison. But the reason is because they know if more people do this, 
then this is an existential threat to the power structure. And in particular, to the billions, that is not an exaggeration, Purdue Farms is a multi-billion dollar agricultural conglomerate that has operations all over the world. And they have literally billions of dollars at stake in people believing that the killing and the confinement of animals is ethical and sustainable and totally fine. Yeah, and, and what really, if you, you know, if you think about it, like it's so, it's so infuriating to think how loyal the authorities, whether it's the police or the legal system, is when it comes to protecting profits and, and assets. Meanwhile, prosecuting people who are saying, well, there's actual beings to be protected here. I mean, it's, once you think about that, it's just like, it really lights a fire. Yeah, and I don't, you know, as much as we have kind of condemned Carla Rodriguez, the district attorney in Sonoma County, and Bob Weiner, the district attorney who's prosecuting us, I, I honestly don't even blame the individual bureaucrats because to them, they just feel like they're doing their job. The problem is a systemic one. And, you know, Bruce and I have talked about this a lot. It's a systemic nature. Every single DA from the time they, they first walk into an office and are taught how to do their job, there are certain people they have to listen to and other people they don't. And the people they have to listen to happen to be the CEOs, the people who live in mansions, the people who are responsible for the economic productivity of the county. But one of the things that's changed in this country, and this has always been true to some degree, but especially in the last 50 to 100 years, is the economic productivity of a county in the entire country and the world is increasing in the hands of a very small number of people. Economic inequality has dramatically increased over the last 50 years. This is Thomas Piketty's work. He wrote this book, Capital in the 21st Century. And you know, the thing that he found is that you know, basically R is greater than G. The return of investment, the return on capital investment is vastly higher than the rate of growth in the economy, which basically means capital is increasing. More and more people are making a living nowadays just from sitting around on their capital than on labor, <laughs> than on actually working. And the result of that is exponential increase in economic inequality. And if a political system is just responsive to economic power, in a society where economic power is being held by a very small number of people, then it's not just the animals who suffer. The animals are, in many ways, the most powerful metaphor because the animals don't have any bank accounts, right? They're not shareholders. They're not gonna be, never going to be CEOs of any companies. They're just sitting there as vessels for the lived experience of, of living creatures. That's all they have, which should be enough. That should be enough for us to respect them. But in a world where the political system only responds to the power of wealth, that is a power the animals will never have. And this is why this case, you know, when I talk to the animal rights activists, I, I, I say, look, this matters to all of us because if you care about the misuse of power, if you care about democracy, if you care about not allowing the powerful to trample on the powerless, and at some point, all of us will be powerless relative to the economic might of a company like Amazon or Whole Foods or Costco, all of us are powerless. And if you care about any of these things, you should care about this case because this case stands for more than just the chickens we rescued from Sunrise Farms. Let's do five more minutes. Mm -hmm. So, what are your greatest fears going into this case? Have you talked to your family about this? Yeah, talked to my family. Um, uh, I try not to focus on the fears. They'll come when they come. <laughs> uh, but do yeah, they I don't, come? I don't, I haven't felt any fear recently. I That's mean, good. I think my fear is just like, yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm, right now I'm just like, hey, is the trial gonna be two weeks long or three weeks long? It's, it's more logistical, but I, I don't feel, yeah, I don't feel any fear. 
as of right now. I just feel like that I don't have any fear. And I think it's important to be in that state of not being fearful. Yeah, I think that's right. And even if you have fear, finding ways, whether it's through preparation or training or social support to overcome those fears. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's but, really the magic trick. But also, I'm right? so lucky because, like, I've seen, you know, recent trials and I've, I feel really good about, obviously, the, the wins that we've had. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, I just think that the tide is turning and the writing is on the wall. And no matter what happens, it's going to be a positive thing for the animal rights movement and for the animals. Um, because even if we do end up getting a small, okay, if we get convicted or if we get a small, you know, or big prisons, um, prison time, like, I think that will hopefully anger and, and infuriate people and to, into taking action. Yeah. And um, I'm open to I'm open to that. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, you'd hope that's the case, that the judge who would be responsible for sentencing would understand that no human being was harmed. The only harm that occurred in this case was harm to a corporation's profits, not even from the actions we took, but from the media and the conversations that started around those actions, right? Because every single one of the animals that were taken out of this farm, I mean, these were animals in deplorable condition. I mean, in some cases, the state's own veterinarian finding this animal is literally rotting to death. That's not, you know, you hear animal rights activists say that often, and, and people say like, ah, it's an exaggeration, not true. The state confiscated the animals at one of these actions. Their own vet inspected the animals and said, first of all, animal after animal has no food in their crops, so they're all starving. None of them are able to walk properly, but multiple animals with wounds, in some cases so deep, their muscle and bone is exposed. I can see this animal's bone. She's been trampled to the point her bone is exposed. And it is necrotic. And necrotic is a medical term for rotting flesh. It's dying and rotting flesh. So these animals are literally rotting to death. So we didn't take anything of value. Um, but so when we've talked to, I remember when we first talked to Isaac, Isaac's Cassie's lawyer, amazing guy. Love this He's guy. Awesome. He's so good. Interesting guy too, like a former Marine who fought in Iraq and was a district attorney. So he was on the other side of these cases for a long time and thought like, oh, I want to protect the community from like bad guys. And he worked in the DA's office and realized, wait a minute, I'm the bad guy. The people are scared of me. Like I'm, I'm like being forced to prosecute these people are like engage in drug offenses and all this activism stuff. I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. So he went, switched to the other side and now he's Sue's He used cops. to be Wayne's lawyer. You should tell yeah. him how you found out about him. I found out about him because I was in jail for our first action. Ugh. And this, our first action in Sunrise, they actually didn't charge us because they just wanted to go away. And so I'm sitting in jail next to a guy, like I basically set up offices in jail because all these, I mean, it's, it's, this is an example of how it's not just about the animals. I well, I did. Can I anybody else imagine that? I can imagine that. I mean, I couldn't actually do it because you're not allowed to practice law in jail and it's not confidential. That's amazing. But effectively, I mean, it's, it's really sad though because you have, yeah. jail is such a powerful experience because you really come closer to suffering and you come some closer yeah. to desperate people. I, yeah. You just have nothing. Like, honestly, one of my best experiences in jail was someone who probably committed a murder. Like, he was a homicide defendant, but he was a good person. I could tell. Like, I was the only person who cared about him in the entire world. Like, he had nobody. And like this huge, hulking Mexican guy that's like 300 pounds, grim and angry, and when I first met him, everyone was like scared of him, and you know, he tried to make it seem like I should be scared of him. But I just told him, hey, I wanna help you. And he just said, you know, 
in my, I think he had been in jail, like waiting for trial for like a year and a half at that point. He's like, you know, I think that's the first time anyone's told me that in the last few years. You want to help me? And I was like, your lawyer doesn't tell him? He's like, no, my lawyer doesn't even take my calls. So just, it's, it's, it is shameful the way we treat people in prison. It is shameful. And it is shameful how many people are in prison in this country. 1.7 million people in this country. A higher rate of incarceration. We complain about Russia and China and dictatorship in Xinjiang. We have a Xinjiang in America today, and it is called the American carceral system. We put more people in jail in this country than any other country in the world. That is shameful. But it's not just that we put people in prison. It's that they don't actually get their constitutional right to counsel. And so when I'm in jail, when people learn that I'm an attorney, inevitably people start coming to me and saying, like, I can't get my attorney to take my phone calls. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not about the defense attorneys. Because you know our buddy Chris Carraway, who used to be a public defender in Colorado, he now works for us and the animals, partly because it was a terrible job. He had 200 clients. 200 clients, he told me. He has like five now. And that's overwhelming. It's like he's trying to represent five activists, and that's overwhelming. So anyways, I set up offices in jail. Didn't actually set up offices. But I'm sitting around, all these people are starting coming. It also protects me, because no one like, wants to target the guy that everyone's like, depending on for legal advice. So Because otherwise, as like, a Chinese guy, it's a little weird to be a Chinese guy in jail. And I remember in Sonoma County, one of the first things that happened to me when they're guiding me around, because they separated me from the, all the other activists. He said, OK, that's the bathroom for black people. That's the, black people for, that's the bathroom for Latinos. That's the bathroom for the white people. And I was like, where do I go to the bathroom? He's like, I guess you don't go to the bathroom. You don't go. <laughs> but you know, because I was a lawyer, I mean, this is the privilege of having an education, and it is the privilege. But one of the guys comes to me, and he's asking me. I think he'd been charged with like, you know, grand theft auto or something. I don't even remember what he was charged with. And I'm trying to remember the guy's name. But, he, but I'm telling him what happened to me. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we actually don't know that many Sonoma County attorneys. So we're going to probably need somebody. I'm a lawyer, and we know lawyers in the Bay Area, or I guess Sonoma County technically is the Bay Area. We know people in San Francisco and Oakland, but we want to find some people who are local who really know this county. And he said, I've got the guy for you. His name's Isaac Schweiger. He's a former Marine. He sues the hell out of cops. And the most important thing you should know about him is, I stiffed him on a bill over and over again over the last five years, and he still takes all my calls. <laughs> and I was like, all right, this is the sort of guy I like. And well, it's true. He's like, I went and talked to Isaac, Isaac and he said, yep, that guy has not paid me at all for years. <laughs> and yes, I still take his calls. And he, Isaac's just a really good person. And you got to find people like that. Yeah. So, um, Wait, I want to ask you, Wayne, do you have any fears going into this Yeah, trial? you know what my fears are. I, mean, I do, but I want other people to know. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, yeah, I've lost a lot of people in the last couple of years. Like I lost, I lost my mom, and then I lost Natalie, I lost Lisa, and then I lost Joan. And you know, I've only got one left, Oliver. And so, I mean, where is my little guy? So, but Oliver. Honestly, one of my fears is that if we both go, then who's he got left? I guess he goes to my family. Yeah, and they'll love him, but it's still not going to be the same because you know. For those of you who don't know Oliver, I mean, he was catatonically afraid of everything when we first rescued him, and Priya and I were the ones who basically showed him the world doesn't have to be a scary place. And like even yesterday, when I just said, he knows his word, when I say mom's here, <laughs> like mom wasn't even that close. Mom was like three minutes away, Aww. but he's literally crying. He starts barking at me just because, you know, Oliver, mom's here. She's already here. He's like, yeah, I know. I see her. <laughs> you don't have to tell me. Mom's here. But yeah, there's, I mean, actually there's three people in this world he loves more than anyone else. You know who the third is, right? Julianne. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Julianne's the other, um, Priya didn't come with me when we rescued him. Oh. But uh, Julianne was the other person who helped us carry, literally carry Oliver out. Yeah, and Julianne doesn't even see Oliver. 
that much. She probably sees Oliver, you know, once every what two, three months. But he gets so happy when he sees. But her. he goes crazy for her. So and there's yeah, I mean, all, all living beings deserve that safety and comfort and joy. Like we all deserve to be around people we love and and who love us back. And yeah, I mean, he'll get that. My sister will take care of him. So that's probably my greatest fear. But but the other fear I have, and and this is why we're having this meeting, is that that the movement will lose steam, that you know, the effort to educate the people around the world about what actually happens in factory farms, about the dangers to our food system. This is gonna be a key element of our trial, the number of diseases. Caged egg farms have a 25 times higher rate of salmonella, poisoning and contamination. And salmonella is a disease that the CDC, not animal rights activists, the CDC, I was just looking at the study, says over 180,000 people around the country get sick from salmonella just from eggs. That's not even counting the dairy products, the meat products, all the other disgusting things that are being fed to people. Just from eggs, 182,000 people get sick and is a 25 times higher rate of infection when animals are confined in cages. And what do we find in Sunrise Farms? Seven, eight years after supposedly all the cages have been banned. Dean talked about this. 8.2 million Californians. Supposedly we have a democracy in this country where if we say we don't want cages, cages are not supposed to be there. What did we find the moment we walked into Sunrise Farms? We found thousands upon thousands of birds in cages. So, but the goal of all this is to prevent any of this stuff from continuing to get out. So the other fear I have is that what happened to Adam Duran and the movement in 2004 and 2005 and 2006, which was... They prosecute people, they put people in jail, and the movement goes silent. That is maybe even a bigger fear, because I think Oliver's going to be okay. You know? his, his, his auntie loves him. Amy will take care of him. Um, she does love him. I mean, and he's not as close to her as he is to me and you, but he'll, he'll, love, he'll find family, because he's such a good boy. But the bigger fear, and, and the reason we're having meetings like this, um, is to make sure people continue to do the work. <laughs>